We're talking this evening about the two recent presidential elections as represented in a book, Miami and the Siege of Chicago. The book is by Norman Mailer. Uh, it's published by Crown. And we will return to Mr. Mailer, who attended both conventions, in just a moment. This is BookBeat, each week introducing you to leading authors and critics. This program is made possible with the cooperation of the National Book Committee and the American Booksellers Association. Your host is Robert Cromie, book editor of the Chicago Tribune and a contributing editor to Book World of the Chicago Tribune and the Washington Post. Norman, if you had to uh, sum up in one sentence each of the conventions, could you do it? I mean, do you have any overall... Uh, impression, any over, m most powerful impression about both conventions? I suppose I'd say that the, um, you know, the impression of the two conventions was precisely Miami and Chicago. I mean, the Republicans had a convention that was relatively a vacation for all concerned, and uh, the Democratic convention took place in the, in the stockyards of Chicago, and, uh, you know, it was a, in the eyes of some was regarded as an abattoir. But I'd, I'd find it hard to, truthfully, uh, Bob, I'd, I'd hate to summarize it in a sentence because uh, that's what, you know, one writes a book in order, uh, one writes a book about subjects that you can't summarize in a sentence. Well, you just did. I think you just did it very well. One was a vacation and one was... Uh, I, I may have left the jewels behind, though. And <laughs> held in my abattoir. Uh, you did it for Harper's Magazine, of course. Yes. You were covering, in other words, you were working, a member of the working press. Yes. And how did you come away uh, feeling about Nixon? for example, because I have a feeling that when you went there, you weren't... Well, I found it more interesting than anyone else did. You, you, you know, uh, the press, there's no particular secret about the press, has always been down on Nixon, and they dislike him intensely. And I found, there's an odd word to use about a man who's president of the United States, but I found that there was something wistful about him. You, you know, and I spent a lot of time writing about him in, in, in this book because he intrigued me. I, I kept feeling that, I, I mean, I always disliked the man intensely years ago. In fact, there's no one in political life that I used to dislike more than Nixon. And in 1962, when uh, he lost the uh, governorship of California and, you know, and started scolding the press in that famous speech where he said you won't have Richard Nixon to kick anymore, uh, everybody I knew sort of celebrated the end of Richard Nixon. And uh, I was delighted. I figured, well, that's the end of one man I can't bear in public life. And then the fact that he got up off the floor just intrigued me because I know Republicans and the wealthy just well enough to know that when a man like Nixon has a fall like that, they don't pick him up themselves. Um, I mean, they don't, they don't need Richard Nixon at that point. There are other people they can find to pursue their policies. So it means that Nixon had to get up off the floor himself. Now, after he got up off that floor, I'm sure he had a tremendous amount of corporate aid on his way to the presidency. But the fact that he could make his own comeback intrigued me. I mean, I thought that the man must have gone through some crisis, I, I'd assume, almost close to... Um, uh, he must have gone close to certain suicidal abysses, I would think. Because, I mean, when a man's in politics all his life, and, uh, and politics is built on the idea of winning, when you have a terrible loss, or two terrible losses in a row, there's not much left. I mean, you know, politicians, I think, are curiously empty people in that sense. You know, one doesn't think of politicians as being men with great reserves who can fall back on, on themselves once they're out of public life. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons why politicians, I think, get so desperate after trying to win elections is you can't conceive what would happen to them if they're not in politics. And in fact, most of them die shortly afterward. So as I say, the, the fact that Nixon could go through this uh, uh, sort of draconian experience and come back a winner, it impressed me. It impressed me the way I'd be impressed with a, uh, a heavyweight fighter. If Sonny Liston comes back and wins the championship, everybody's going to decide he's a remarkable fellow. You know, Floyd Patterson regains his championship. Everyone decides the man has heroic stature. 
And so I felt that if we're going to apply these standards to athletes, let's at least give the same rights to a politician. I mean, let's give the man that much of a chance just to see, uh, you know, he, he obviously had one enormous surprise in him. There was a Democratic liberal in America who ever thought Richard Nixon would be heard from again. So he surprised him that way. So I'm, it isn't that I'm approving him or in favor or even that I voted for him, because I didn't vote for either Nixon or Humphrey, or for anyone for that matter. But I just uh, felt that I'd, before I decided the man's, you know, absolutely impossible and hopeless and a, a dreadful disaster for America, I'd like to see what he does for a while. Well, you compared the uh, Rockefeller Party for the Delegates and the Nixon Party for the Delegates and found them completely different. And one, uh, you thought a professional job. You thought Nixon did it beautifully and that Rockefeller's was sort of hit or miss and really not very uh, useful. Well, I began to admire Nixon's skill just as a professional politician. Uh, you know, the banquet he, he had for the Republicans was sort of relatively quiet. It was carefully done. He shook the hand of every delegate who came through and then and the hand of the wife and the hand of the children if they were along or the hands of the relatives or the grandmothers or whatever and he had his wife with him and he had his children there and there was a sort of intimate family atmosphere to the reception and it was done with a certain courteousness and attentiveness it was obvious why Nixon was winning going to win the nomination at that point it was because he had worked hard getting individual delegates votes all over the country I mean he just worked with these people he'd go on out and he'd talk to them and he spent evenings listening to them and uh, 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 I think what I mentioned is, is that he knew which Aunt Matilda had lost the mortgage on which little farm, and, that, and he yeah. knew all the nuts and bolts of, of, of Republican delegatesmanship. And Rockefeller just came in, you know, he came in like, a, like the last of the great spenders, which of course is, is a, uh, again, was comic in a way, because if one knows anything about Republicans, it's that they're tightwads, you know, <laughs> personally tightwads. They can be worth uh, $50 million, but they're tight. And they don't like people who throw money around. I mean, everyone knows that about Republicans. And here was Rockefeller coming in trying to buy the convention, you know, they say he spent uh, ten million dollars to, to get that nomination, and I thought, well, if he just, you know, if he just tried to buy four hundred delegates at twenty-five thousand dollars a piece, he might have done as well, you know. And it just seemed comic. I just had all that food up on huge banquet tables, falling on the floor, all those Madison Avenue, uh, adver you know, advertising minds working behind him, you know, selling his case to the American people. He was, he was a far and away the most uh, popular candidate in the eyes of the American people, and he had the least chance of anyone of, of ever getting uh, that nomination because there were two different ball games going on. And it seemed to me that a man who didn't really have enough sense to know where, in which stadium the game was being played did not deserve to be president. Well, in, in the next case of Nixon, you're a pro admiring another pro, because he did behave like a professional. Oh, yeah, it was a superb professional yeah. performance. Whether, whether there was any uh, 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 you know, uh, moral content in it is another matter. Uh, I don't know, and I, I didn't pretend to know, you know. Well, on the whole, it was a rather dull convention to cover, though, wasn't it? Oh, the dullest I've ever been at. So let's come back to Chicago. All right. You got yeah. to Chicago early and went, uh, I think you, your book starts out, well, very early in the book, you were examining, uh, or was that the Republican? You were examining the room where the, the speakers were going to be. That was a Republican. A Republican. But you, this is, you do this, you, you scout it the way a good reporter should. Well, ahead I of time. To, I, I mean, I think to you get have the to. layout and the entrances and the exits and uh, to learn about the physical properties of whatever you're going to cover. Well, I think you've got to get the feel of the ground and... and, and um, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, to go back to Nixon just for one moment, I remember in his nominating speech, before he started the speech, he was talking to some reporters, and he said he was driving around Miami that day, getting ready to write his speech because he wanted to get a feel of the town. Uh -huh. And I thought, well, sure, that's just what a writer would do or Very a journalist smart. would do. And yeah. that, uh, uh, you've got to know to who you're talking. But, yes, so I always try to, well, I always try to, uh, you know, have some sense of the scene before I begin to write. Well, how soon did you sense the feeling of uh, Chicago? Even well, before you got here? Oh, I sensed it a year away, almost. I've been nine months away because uh, I was talking to Jerry Rubin, who was one of the leaders of the Yippies back in uh, 
December, about a year ago. And he was talking about Chicago and the plans he had for Chicago. And I could just see what was coming up. And I remember talking to Alan Ginsberg about it. And Alan is one of the bravest men I know, you know, because he's, he's absolutely nonviolent, but he'll go into anything. I mean, he'll, he'll walk right up the mouth of a cannon. Uh, you know, he's absolutely impersonal about his life or any damage to his person. And Alan uh, was talking about Chicago, and he turned to me and he said, he said, I'm scared. He said, I'm scared of Chicago. I don't like Chicago. Now, this was six months before. He I was said, tear gassed twice. And I said, I don't like it either. You know, we agree mm -hmm. that Chicago was nothing to look forward to. Well, Dellinger, you know also. David Dellinger. Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. He, was, he was one of the directors of the March on the Pentagon. Yes, no, no, I know, I know, I know yeah. David Dellinger. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but it, it, it uh, so as I say, this, I had this feeling of fear. And, 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 and sort of excited anticipation, but I mean, I knew it was going to be no picnic for a long way out. I must say that, that uh, uh, if Chicago had been trying to protect itself, if, if Mayor Daley had wanted to avoid trouble, he could have gone a long way toward avoiding the trouble, kind of trouble that he got into. And, and I, you know, I think it was, you know, it was almost, uh, the, 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 the way in which the whole thing was handled was uh, so scandalously bad that it finally it, it surpassed tragedy and became comedy again. You mean if they had granted, for instance, a marching permit and given them a place to sleep and that sort of thing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, 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 uh, I mean, if there had been just a hint of generosity, it, it, uh, uh, you know, it was as if uh, the, the Daly and his people were, were determined to force uh, everybody who, who, who uh, you know, all these very terribly divergent left groups, I mean, these... Divergent left groups are as different as divergent right groups. I mean, between, let's say, someone like Bill Buckley and the John Birch Society, there's an extraordinary difference. There are any number of factions, you know, they're at each other's throats all the time. The right wing is always at their throats, the left wing is always at their own throats. And, and what Daly does, he unified the left in, in, in Chicago during that week. And I think he lost the election for Hubert Humphrey. You had, I do too. I agree. Yeah. In fact, I had bet a little money against Nixon just before the convention and wrote it off right afterwards. Yeah. You, uh, uh, describe some of the convention um, arrangements. And I didn't realize, although I, I might have suspected, I suppose, that uh, there was a very careful arrangement of the delegates and that there were varying volumes on the microphones. Mm. I didn't mm. know this. Well, you, I, you'd be hard put to prove there were uh, varying volumes on the microphones. What did happen is, is that all the pro-Humphrey people, all the pro-Humphrey delegations, almost entirely, were sat up front. And the uh, anti-Humphrey delegations tended to be at the back of the room, back of the amphitheater. And they also complained bitterly, all during the convention, personally and publicly and every chance they had, that their mics weren't working well. And in fact, you didn't have to take their word for it. You could see when you watched it on television that it wasn't, they weren't working well. Very often you couldn't hear what they were saying through the mic. And on their private phones they couldn't hear. You could see it by the look of irritation on their faces. They were trying to get through on a phone. They'd slam the phone down, pick up another, press buttons. Yeah. It was obvious they weren't getting anything. And, and uh, whereas the people at the front were well-oiled, and they held their phone like this, and they chatted away. So it was obvious that the phones had been rigged. But, but then it was obvious that the uh, phones at the, at the Hilton were rigged yeah, all over. You mentioned that the phones at the Hilton seemed to have been tapped. Oh, completely. I mean, it got to be a comedy. You know, you, you could hear conversations going on in Saigon by the time you got done. And there was a lot of elevator trouble. Oh, tremendous amount. Well, that I took for granted. But I mean, okay. more than usual, somehow. I suppose because of the security precautions. I wouldn't say more than usual, because I do remember that the greatest nightmare I ever remember about elevators and conventions was uh, at the Barry Goldwater's convention in 64 in San Francisco where to get to the top of the mark, you know, could yeah. be, could, was, took, it was operational sometimes, it took an hour. It was, it was you know, you just couldn't believe what was... <laughs> what well, Hopkins isn't that tall. No, no it's very narrow. Yeah. <laughs> there yeah. an awful lot of people in that lobby trying to get up stairs. Well, did you get uh, the same sort of... Were you at the Republican convention in 64? Yes. Did you get the same feeling from the Democratic one that you did from the Republican one in 64? <coughs> no, I think the... Um, the Democratic one was sort of, uh, this last night was sort of disgusting. 
they were just simply disgusting. They were, they were, you, you know, the only things that were sort of honourable and exciting really sort of came out of various lost causes. I mean, some of the McCarthy people acted with dignity. A fellow from Wisconsin who... Uh, yeah, there were individual yeah. figures that stood out. Paul O'Dwyer was real, really fine. And, uh, the Republican Convention of 64, I thought, was altogether different because there was a tremendous excitement to it. There was a sort of barbaric excitement to it, as if a, as if a holy crusade were beginning. I, I was completely off on what that campaign was going to accomplish. I thought Barry Goldwater had a real chance because it was such passion, such dedication among those Republicans. And I, mean, I, I just didn't expect him to run what he did run, which is the most impotent and idiotic campaign any presidential candidate's run in many a, you know, many a decade. I mean, he just ran a dumb campaign. But I think if he'd run a really intelligent, hard-fighting, good conservative campaign, you know, we'd really gotten into what conservatism means rather than just uh, blatting out slogans and getting ill-tempered, that he really could have done something. I don't think he could have beaten Johnson. He certainly could have done much better than he did do. But as I say, that convention had uh, a mixed atmosphere of, of excitement and horror, and a feeling of a war beginning and a crusade beginning, at the same time all sorts of potential brutalities were in the air. You see, so it was, a, it was a convention that was both exciting and frightening, but exciting and frightening in, in, in an active vein, if you will, whereas what was fascinating about the Democratic convention here was, was, was you had this, this feeling of, of this, you know, this leviathan of a party, the largest and most powerful part, uh, political party in the history of American political life, breaking up before your eyes. It was like a whale coming up out of the sea with its spine breaking in front of you. And, and so it had, a, you know, it had an apocalyptic quality, but it was the, the, the apocalyptic quality of the end rather than the beginning of something. You, know, you were as annoyed by everyone else, though, by the uh, uh, strong-arm tactics on the floor. Oh, well, that I detest. That I've always detested about yeah. politics. I mean, the thing I've always but detested... But you find that in every convention? This wasn't really unusual then. No, it was worse here. It was, it was worse. worse here, and then it was more open. It was more cynical. Uh, there's certain... Even in, 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 in the general sort of sodden brutality of convention mechanics, uh, there's certain amenities that are observed. Uh, you know, like if, you're, if you happen to be a, uh, writing for a periodical, you've got your lousy little seat up in the balcony. But that you've got. They don't take that away from you. I mean, this convention, you would get there, and you, there, was, there were other people in your seat. You go up to an usher. Uh, to, to, he'd look at the wall, because obviously Daly had given your seat to someone else. I mean, there was just stupid things done. But the machinery yeah. showed in this one, didn't it? Yeah, and it you showed. You could see it being and pulled. It showed. Yeah. And in a way, you know, I sometimes think Mayor Daly's a reverse saint. You know, a lot of the yippies afterward, you know, when they got back to New York, they were talking about, they say, they say, Daly's beautiful. <laughs> well, they loved him in a funny way, because finally he was a man who expressed himself. Yeah. You, you know, and in this age where everybody hides their evil under the most extraordinary plastic or vinyl carpets, in, you know, uh, you know, and all the curses are soundproofed. I mean, suddenly to see this huge beast of a man, you know, proud, arrogant, full of bile, uh, dominating this town, this tremendous town with this tremendous fist, and right out there in the open, uh, you, you know, there was a drama to it. At least he gave drama to the it American people. to them. Yeah, you know, it, 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 uh, a lot of people uh, got their uh, uh, private parts injured forever, but, uh, you know, people have been getting their private parts injured in Chicago for a good many decades now. Now, you were not very complimentary to Humphrey... McGovern uh, or McCarthy, but you're a you were a Bobby Kennedy man. No, I thought I was finally uh, a complimentary to McCarthy. I found him a very complex man. Well, you liked him when you met him at lunch at dinner afterwards. I liked That's him when you end. liked him the best. By the end, I had a yeah. big deal of respect for him. In fact, I, I, I must say he's the only politician I've met in all these years who looks like a president. He didn't look like a president to me for most of the time. He looked sort of sallow and puffy and tired and languid. But the night he gave up the presidency, when I when I saw him in this restaurant, I suddenly looked at him. I thought, how tough this man really is. You know, suddenly his toughness showed, and it was a great kind of toughness. I mean, it was, it was like a man who was made of steel and strong and clean. I mean, there was something really impressive about him. So I wouldn't say that I was down on him at all. I mean, I, mean, I really have great respect for McCarthy now, because I suddenly realized what it had meant 
to dale in them johnson's wrath you see but you I, switched your viewpoint when you met him in the restaurant he well, sort of converted you on that didn't he he didn't he didn't just because uh, of the way he looked it wasn't that alone and the way he talked been through this convention yeah. you see i suddenly realized what it meant to dale in johnson's wrath i mean after all, chicago been a small uh, uh dramatic presentation of how much power Lyndon johnson had even out of it even having withdrawn or pretending to have withdrawn or whatever even not even expressing himself directly but having daly who's quite idiosyncratic expressing Johnson's will in Daly's fashion, which is after all not exactly the same, you could feel just what it meant to go against this machine. I mean, how powerful this machine was, how impactful, how humorless, you see. And so if a man like McCarthy, who has just bubbles with, with his own quiet, dry humor, to tackle that humorless leviathan was, was impressive. And so then I realized that the man was much, much stronger than I'd ever re recognized. That, I mean, the man really had a kind of like a clean, uh, sort of almost, uh, 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 well, you know, he had a... a he had the steel of, an, of a truly angelic will, you know, to have done that. So I was very impressed with it. Uh, I think uh, the line I like best in your book uh, is the one in which you were describing Bobby Kennedy. And you said he was slim and neither very weak nor very strong, somewhere between a blade of grass and a blade of steel. Mm, mm. That's a lovely line. Mm. Uh, what did Bobby say to you the first time he met you? Mr. Mailer, you write a... M oh, you're a mean, uh, you're a mean, mean man, man with, with a, a word. With a word, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then I said... Uh, 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 Oh, Senator, I like to think of myself as a gracious writer. He said, oh, that too, that too. <laughs> but you were, were an admirer of Bobby's. Oh, I admired him a great deal, yes. It, it, uh, Did he have the same... Well, I didn't admire him. I loved him. You, you know, what I mean is, is after, after he was assassinated, I suddenly realized that, my God, I, I'd love, you know, I'd, one had loved that man. And, Did and, he have uh, the same qualities that uh, his brother did? No, he's very different. He's much more personal. Uh, he, his brother, uh, I didn't... I, you know, I, I, I didn't I just met Jack Kennedy twice. I just met Bobby Kennedy once. I, can't, I don't pretend to be any authority on, on you, you know, what, what they're like in person. But the impression I have, Jack, Jack Kennedy was a man who's much more remote. He had a dry wit. He had a certain uh, rather careful charm. And he, uh, he was a very pleasant man, superficially. But he was not, you didn't feel you were talking to someone who was, just as, who was feeling just as alive as you were at that moment. Uh, you were talking to a man who was looking at you from many removes. Whereas with Bobby Kennedy, it, 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 the funny thing was, I, I, I would have liked to box with him. You know, he, he was perky, he was snappy. He, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, he, he'd get you mad, at the same time you'd like him, he'd get you mad. It was, it was sort of like a, having a roommate who would needle you, you know, something like that. He's a very young man, he was, he was much younger than me. Kennedy was older, so there was that difference in feeling. Well, too. I was very moved after Bobby uh, was killed by Jack Parr. Did you see him talking about Kennedy on television? No, I didn't. No. Well, he broke up, which of course Parr apparently always does, but. He was so obviously completely adoring that I, I thought, well, you know, this must have been a great man and, and a very charming and, and lovable man. He had and a... I, yet uh, many people hated him and still do and say he was conniving and scheming and cold and... I didn't get that feeling, no, no, no. Yeah. Uh, 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 he was... Well, I wrote about him, you know, it's Yeah, well, and, and beautifully. You didn't have too much... Uh, direct confrontation with the police yourself during the convention, but you had one funny one, if you could recreate the scene in which you decided to inspect the National Guard Jeep with all the uh, barbed wire on the front. Oh, well, you know, uh, it, it, uh, it, what happened is that I spent four days at the convention saying to myself, you mustn't get arrested, you've got this long piece to write, don't get arrested, stay out of trouble, just once, just this once, stay out of trouble, and I kept staying out of trouble and hating myself. Not knowing whether I was staying out of trouble because I was doing my job professionally or I was staying out of trouble because I was a little more scared than I was willing to admit. And just not knowing, feeling rotten about the whole thing. And finally, on the last night, it was all over. I got drunk and I went out and I just got into an argument with the National Guard officer about these jeeps with these extraordinary uh, 
piece of barbed wire on them, and I started sassing them. Well, you were making notes on, on what? I, mean, I was taking notes on how many strands of wire there were. Yeah. And he asked me to step back, and I said, I'm a reporter for Harper's Magazine, and I'm taking notes. He said, you'll have to step back, and, you know, we got in this impasse, and uh, I was taken in. And the moment I was taken in, I ran into, uh, uh, at that moment, it seemed like that one nice cop on a whole Chicago force. And I, since I've said these, made these frank remarks about uh, Mayor Daly, I won't mention this cop's name, or he'll be in trouble probably. <laughs> anyway, he, he, he had a good sense of humor. He was a good Irish cop, and he uh, sort of laughing at the whole thing, and he let me out. And when he let me out, I got into a fight on the street. With, with some guy who said several unprintable things about uh, all the yippies. Yeah, not unprintable, but unspeakable things about the yippies across the street. And you said, don't say that about them, they're my troops. Well, that's how drunk I was. <laughs> <laughs> and so he popped me, and the moment he popped me, two cops grabbed me. So I figured out afterward he must have been some sort of uh, petty provocateur or whatever, because it was a very funny sort of situation. I mean, those cops were right there to grab me, and I'd been hit. And the moment they grabbed me, he hit me again, although he couldn't punch worth anything. And, and uh, then they dragged me downstairs, and then this one seemed a little more serious, and then there were a couple of phone calls, and I was let but out. the same commander was there. The one oh, yeah. who just and let you out was yeah. there again. This time, he was not quite as friendly. And, uh, uh, and I, never, I still don't know what, what the devil was going on. I, I have no idea. It just felt sort of slightly out of focus and slightly spooky. Well, I had, uh, I had one moment of regret reading your book. You were in Lincoln Park uh, just before some trouble broke out, and you were with a professional fighter, mm -hmm. Joe Torres, obviously. Jose Torres, yeah. Jose Torres. And uh, the, one of the principal reasons you left was you, you were afraid Joe would lose, or Jose would lose his temper and belt a few policemen and get in real trouble. Well, it was more than getting in real trouble. He could have gotten very badly hurt because, uh, you know, uh, uh, since he's a professional prize fighter, th th those guys have, have uh, you know, they have the most powerful reflexes in the world. When they get hit, they hit back. I mean, this is one of the most deepest expressions of their nature. They're trained, sure. And, and if, if a cop had ever hit Jose, that would have been it. That, that would have been, it, you know, uh, Jose would have probably taken out about eight or ten of those guys, and then they would have killed him. I mean, they just would have beaten him half to death. And since he's trying to make a comeback and regain his championship, I figured uh, I'd better get him out of there. Which brings us for So then I didn't know whether I was getting him out of there to save his neck or getting him out of there to save my neck. It, it got tricky. <laughs> Which brings us very gracefully to your movie. Is he in, in your new movie as well as your old one? Yeah. Yeah, Jose's in all the movies. Right? What's he do in your new one? Well, now, when you say that, you mean the one that's finished about cops? Or, the or one you've just shot? finished. We say I shot one last summer that's uh, in color. That's not out yet. I'm working on it still. Yeah. But I finished one about cops called Beyond the Law. Well, that's the one that, that uh, they're showing excerpts from on some of the TV things that you're on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, he's in that, too. Yeah. He plays a guy who robs a gas station. Why are you? He does. Why are you making these movies? What got you into that? Well, you know, I make movies without scripts. And uh, the reason I do is because, you know, I love words too much to uh, 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 write a script and then see those words turned inside out by directors, actors, and what have you. In other words, what I'm getting is I don't think you can make a movie by running a script. I don't, I don't think you have any control over a movie that way. And on top of that, I think it's the wrong way to go with movies. Cause I think movies have a vocabulary which is quite separate from language. In other words, it's almost as if... Uh, 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 a, a, a movie starts at the other end of communication. You see, we speak with our mouth and we see yeah. with our eyes, and it's almost as if organically, biologically, if you will, there are two different modes of communication altogether. And, and there's something very mysterious about movies. And what I find is, is that when you shoot movies without a script, uh, that doesn't mean you, you shoot without an idea. I mean, you have a very definite idea of the story you want. And you pick your people very carefully, and you pick people that you think are going to be able to deliver it for you. But, but they ad lib. Well, what you do create the situation, so it is, I mean, you don't give them dialogue. But yeah. I think I pick people, yeah. who obviously, who, who can talk, yeah. you know, and, and uh, well, they don't have to talk, they have to have a presence of one sort or another. Because sometimes there are people who don't talk at all who are, who are extraordinarily photogenic or interesting. But I, I try to put them in situations which are interesting enough so they forget about the camera, they forget about the lights, 
and, and they uh, uh, and they, they speak their own lines. Well, when you get that, you don't need a professional actor, because it would, the demand on a professional actor is to speak someone else's lines as if he just thought of them that moment and just speaking. And they spend uh, 10, 15, 20 years to get the kind of professional equipment to enable them to do that. You get the same effect with an amateur who is just speaking his own lines. Yeah, in a movie. Of course, yeah. you can't do that yeah. in, in theater at all. You need professionals for theater. But well, now, you've done two complete movies, then. Yeah. And you have a third about finished? No, it's, uh, it was 45 hours long when I finished it. And now it's How many? 45 hours. What have you cut it to? It's about six hours long at the moment. And we'll get it down to about three hours. Well, now, where did your first two show? Were they uh, commercially... Uh, well, the first one was a disaster, because the sound, unfortunately, was unhappy in the first oh. one, really unhappy. Yeah. And you could hardly it, hear anything in it, and it, it, it got very, very bad reviews, and I think it deserved a lot of the bad reviews. I think it's better than the reviews, but, you know, you know if you can't hear what people are saying in a movie, it's pretty hopeless. So that one, as, as they say, bombed, and that was the end of it. The second one, it technically, is much superior. The sound's much better. Photography is much better. Story's much better. I think it's just generally a better movie, and, and uh, that was at the New York Film Festival in September. And we opened New York. We ran in New York about six weeks. And now we're going to be, it's going to be shown in colleges all over the country. I play a lieutenant of detectives in, in the second one. I bet you're good. Fair. I, would, I think I'm about the worst actor in the whole company, but, <laughs> but the best director they got. So. But your new one is color. Yeah. The, the, the first two were black and white, weren't they? Uh, first two were black and white. Yeah. And after you, you said uh, you thought you'd quit now because it was a little expensive. Well, no, unless I start making money unless on them. Unless you start making money. Because yeah. I made them with my own money. Oh. And, uh, well, it's the only way to do it. I hate, I hate losing other people's money while I'm learning something. And, and, and I mean, the marvelous thing about losing your own money is, is you do learn, you know, because you remember it. You remember the little mistakes you made. Yeah. We'd better get back to Miami and the Siege of Chicago because we're getting near the end. What reaction have you had from the book, from other people who are there? I think generally that the reaction has been, you know, sort of kind and generous and nice. It, 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 I think the reactions to this book and my last one, The Armies of the Night, have been sort of uh, more, more gracious than reactions to anything I've written in ever, perhaps. Well, yeah. I go around telling people you're one of the great reporters. Well, I, I don't think of myself as, a, as, as even being a good reporter because um, I think I'm a good uh, political essayist, if you will, a political journalist. Uh, but I don't think I'm a good reporter because there's never any need. I don't have the technical equipment to be a good reporter. You know, I don't have the contacts. I don't know how to go out and get a story in a hurry. And we might have a good reporter as a man who can get a tough story in a given day. And he has to know how to do it. And that takes a technique that takes, you know, 10, 20 years to acquire. Well, there are two kinds, though. There's also the reporter who sets down very accurately what he has seen and what he's felt. And this you do, I think, beautifully. No, I think I'm a good witness. You, you know, that, uh, same uh, yeah, thing, yeah. really. But, it, but it, you know, I, don't, I never have to be able to get the story on a given day. So it, I have a very yeah. easy job of it that way. I really feel modest about my abilities as a reporter. I think, I think you know, if I were a reporter on a paper, working on a daily paper, a lot of my faults would show up much more quickly. I think what I, my strength is, is, as I say, is that I, you know, I'm not afraid to say exactly what I'm thinking about something. And most reporters, by the time they, uh, you know, get to my age, have lost the habit entirely of ever saying what they don't even know what they think anymore. Well, I think you probably would offend a great many uh, people, except that uh, sometimes you're very hard on other people, but you're equally hard on yourself. That I think is an unusual trait. Well, you know, it, it, uh, see, it's the only way to stay ahead of yourself. Well, it's the only <laughs> way to play fair, I'm sure. Are you working on another book? Now, at the moment, I'm working on these movies. I want to go back to, to Beyond the Law for one moment. About 30 seconds. All right, well, well, then I'll let it go, because I can't possibly say it in that right. time. Except this. It's just that the language in Beyond the Law is a great problem. It's very hard to get it shown, because the language is very obscene. It's almost as obscene as language as the Walker Report. Have you read that? Yeah, I started to read it. How'd you yeah. like it? I thought it was fairly impressive. I didn't read enough of it to form a judgment yeah. on it, but I thought it was well written anyway. Well, it's selling extremely well around I, Chicago, I, I, as I, you I, might I, imagine. I'd be surprised if it weren't. We've been talking with Norman Mailer author most recently of Miami and the Siege of Chicago, which deals with the Republican and Democratic presidential conventions. 
I'm Bob Cromie of the Chicago Tribune. Thank you very much for watching us, and I do recommend uh, uh, Norman Mailer's new book. It's fascinating reading. And thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Bob. It's very nice of you. Happy to meet you.